When Tegan and I had just moved back from Australia, we got word that my brother and sister-in-law had lost their baby in childbirth. They'd gone into the hospital to give birth to their third child, and there were complications, and the baby came out stillborn. I'll never forget uh, attending the funeral. It was very painful watching my brother and sister-in-law grieve. Up the front of the church was this little coffin containing my little niece. And at the end of the service, they played the song by Coldplay, The Hardest Part. Do you know that song? And the hardest part was letting go, not taking part. You really broke my heart. And as that song played, the curtains on the stage closed on that little, little coffin And so did the life that never really began. It was so sad. And it made me wonder, what do I say to my brother and sister? How do I help them deal with their grief? What can I say that can help bring comfort in a moment like this? You know, at some point in your life, if you haven't already, you will have to face the reality of death. For those of you who are younger here this morning, you may feel invincible. But at some point, death will come in and interrupt your life. You know, when you're younger, you go through this phase, and maybe some of you are experiencing this, where you go to a lot of 21st birthday parties, and then you attend a lot of weddings. But then when you get a bit older, you go through this season where you attend funerals. First, you have to go to the funeral of your grandparents, then the funeral of your parents, and then the friends that you know who grew up with you, they start to die. And this makes you ask some pretty deep questions. Am I going to see my loved ones again? What has happened to them? Where are they now? What do I make of my death? Maybe those are questions that you're asking this morning. Maybe your husband has died, or your wife has died, or a child has died, or maybe a friend of yours who you know very well is facing death, and you're wondering, will I see that person again? Now, the reason that I say this is because this was a question that the Thessalonian church was struggling with. They were struggling with the question, will we see our loved ones again? Look down your Bibles in verse 13. Paul begins the passage we're studying this way. He says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who have fallen asleep, those who have gone down to the grave and died, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. You see, in the first century, the early Christians knew that Jesus had come, that he had died, that he had been raised from the dead, and they also knew that Jesus would come back again. In the book of Acts, the disciples saw Jesus go up in a cloud to heaven, and and an angel appeared to them saying, in the same way that Jesus has left, he's going to come back again. However, as time went on and Jesus didn't come back, people began to die, and churches like the Thessalonians began to wonder what would happen to those Christians who had died. You see, in the ancient world, the prevailing view of death was that death was an eternal sleep from which you did not wake up. Because when you see a dead person, it looks like they're asleep. And so the Thessalonians wondered if there was any hope for those people in their community who had died. They were afraid that their loved ones would miss out on entering into the kingdom of God when Jesus returned. But Paul says to them, we do not want you to be uninformed. And then in this passage... He gives them clear teaching on whether they will see their loved ones again. You see, what people need when they're grieving is they need clear thinking. They need clear understanding. Yes, they need love, but they also need clear thinking, clear hope from the Bible. And the Bible does give us hope. And to answer this question, 
Will I see my loved ones again? It's really wrapped up in also the return of Jesus. And so this morning, as I seek to answer the question, will you see your loved ones again? I want to answer two questions. First, what happens when you die? And then, what will happen when Jesus returns? So we're going to look at what happens when you die, and then secondly, what will happen when Jesus returns? So first, let's look at what happens when you die. The Bible tells us that all of humanity can actually be divided into two groups, the redeemed and the lost, those who have trusted in Jesus and those who have not. In our text, Paul calls those who have not trusted in Jesus, those who have no hope. And the reason he gives them that label is because the moment of death marks a division in the human race between those who are saved and those who are lost. You see, there's always hope up until the point of death. But if you haven't trusted Jesus at your point of death, there is no longer any hope. You see, the Bible presents human beings as possessing a body and as possessing a soul. We as human beings, we all have material part. We have this body and we also have an immaterial part, our souls or our spirits. And the Bible presents death not as a cessation of existence, but actually as a separation. At death, your body and your soul are separated. Your body, your immaterial part, goes down to the grave, whereas your soul returns to its maker, to God. Now, for believers who have trusted in Jesus, their souls upon death go to be with Jesus in paradise. You remember that on the cross, Jesus said to the thief right next to him, he said, today you will be with me in paradise. Or as Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 6, he would say, to be absent from the body is to be what? Is to be present with the Lord. But this is not our final existence, paradise with Jesus. As Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 5, our souls groan and they long to be clothed. You see, one day Christ will return, as we're going to see in a few moments, and he'll resurrect the bodies of those who are in Christ, and their souls and their bodies will be reunited, and they will enter into, eventually, the new heavens and the new earth that God has prepared for those who love him. But for those who have not repented of their sins and put their faith in Jesus, then their souls upon death go to a place that the Bible describes as Hades. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, describe this place. It's a place of gnashing of teeth. A place where the worm doesn't settle and the fire never goes out. And after being in that, their body will be resurrected at the great white throne judgment. And then the Bible says, if your name is not written in the Lamb's book of life, you will be cast into the lake of fire, which is the second death. Now for Christians, when they die, we do grieve. Have you here heard the expression, death is a part of life? Who's heard that expression? Death is a part of life. That's not actually a biblical expression. <laughs> now, death is a reality that we face living in a fallen world, but death was never what God intended for this world. Now, God created man in Genesis 1, and he breathed into him the breath of life, and God intended that Adam and Eve would eat from the tree of life, and they would dwell forever in the world that he had created for them. But when man sinned against God, then death entered into this world. And so now death reigns over this world. And so our world is filled with death and decay. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. And so when you see a loved one die, you do grieve. Because that's not the way things are supposed to be. You know, I was just 21 when my grandmother, 
who I loved very, very much, Grandma Pickett. <laughs> she died. She was a very special woman. I wish you could have met her. She was a Russian immigrant who had moved to Australia when her parents moved around the time of the Russian Revolution. And she had a very hard life, which included a broken marriage, and she lived through the poverty of the 1930s and 1940s in rural Australia. But she battled on, and in her later years, she just lived for her grandchildren. I remember us, her spoiling us, her, her cooking us these breakfasts with her special herbs and spices. You know those Russian special herbs and spices? You know what I'm talking about, Serge, that they put on everything? That's what my grandmother did. It had a unique smell in my grandmother's house. Anyways, one day, my grandmother had heart disease and she died. My mother came to her house and she found her, she had died overnight in her bed. And I remember attending her funeral and her coffin being lowered into the ground and I can remember just thinking, this is not the way things are supposed to be. This is not right. So it's okay to grieve at a funeral, at the death of a loved one. When tragic things happen, we grieve. That's not the way things are supposed to be and the way that God created His good world. And death does bring a separation with our loved ones. And it's okay to grieve that immediate loss of their presence. But Paul says Christians don't grieve as those who have no hope. And he says twice in this passage, he calls death sleep. Now, there are several ways in which sleep is a helpful definition of a Christian's death. First, sleep does us no harm, and this can also be said for those who die in Christ. Psalm 121 verse 7 declares this, the Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep you alive. This is true for believers, not only in life, but also in death, since verse 8 proclaims that God will keep our lives from this time forth and forevermore. Second, just as sleep is beneficial for the living, death also benefits the Christian. You know, sleep is often the best prescription for those who are suffering from sickness or fatigue. You know, the doctor will often say, what you need is you just need a good night's sleep. So sleep restores the body. And death, when we go into death, as soon as we pass into death for the Christian, their soul will be renewed. John Owen explains it this way. He says, when at death the soul departs from the body, it is immediately freed from all weakness, disability, darkness, doubts, and fears. And being freed, their souls flourish and expand to the fullest extent. Now, this teaching obviously refutes the idea of soul sleep, the claim that believers upon death enter an unconscious state until the coming of Jesus. But instead, as we've said, the Bible teaches that as soon as we die, we are translated into the presence of the glory of God. I love the way the Westminster Confession phrases it. Look at this. The Westminster Confession says it's like this. He says the, it says, The souls of the righteous, being then made perfect in holiness, are received into the highest heavens, and they behold the face of God in light and glory, waiting for the full redemption of the body. You know, some of you here have had loved ones, Christian loved ones, who had debilitating diseases. And isn't it a comfort to know that now that they are dead, they're in the presence of the Lord. And all that sickness and disease is gone. It's such a comfort. 
And finally, like sleep, the death of a Christian is temporary. Christians will one day wake up at the coming of Christ, as we're going to see in a few moments. You know, in 1899, two prominent people died. The first was Colonel Robert O. Ingerstoll, for whom the Ingerstoll Lectures on Immortality at Harvard University are named, and who gave his brilliant mind to refuting Christianity. Ingersoll suddenly died that year, leaving his family utterly devastated. So grief-stricken was his wife that she would not allow his body to be taken from their home until the health of their family required its removal. His remains were cremated and his funeral service was such a sense of dismay and despair that even the newspapers at that day reported on it. The other man who died that year was Dwight L. Moody, the great Christian evangelist. He had been declining for some time and the family gathered around his bed. On the last morning, his son heard him exclaim, Earth is receding, receding. Heaven is opening. God is calling. You are dreaming, father, said his son. But Moody replied, no, Will. This is no dream. I've been within the gates. I've seen the children's faces. Moody seemed to revive, but then he started to slip away again. Is this death? He was heard to say, this is not bad, there is no valley, this is bliss, this is glorious. By now his daughter Emma had come and she began to pray for him to recover. No, no, Emma, he said, don't pray for that. God is calling, this is my coronation day, I've been looking forward to it. After Moody died, his funeral was a scene of triumph and joy. Those in attendance, they sung hymns of praise to God. Death, where is your sting? Death, where is your victory? You see, Christians, we don't have to fear death any moment. Because the moment you die, to be absent from the body, means that you will be present with Jesus. How good is that? Praise the Lord. So we do grieve. It's natural to grieve. But we don't grieve as those who have no hope. Because of the work of Jesus on the cross, the sting of death has been removed. And upon death, your soul will go into the immediate presence of the Savior whom you have loved if you are a Christian. All that is very encouraging for believers, but still it doesn't answer the question. Will we see our loved ones again? It's great to know if when you, if you're a believer, that you're going to go immediately into the presence of Jesus, but still our hearts cry out, will we see our loved ones again? Well, our text does answer that question, but it's tied to our second question this morning, which is what happens when Jesus returns? Notice that Paul goes on to say in verse 14, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. You see, to be a Christian means that you have a certain view of human history. Most of the people in the ancient world believed that human history would go round and round and round and it had no meaning. They had a, a cylindrical view of history, that history just repeated over and over and over again. You know, it's interesting in our secular world today that there is this interesting thoughts about history. On the one hand, you have progressivism, which, which sort of says that history is getting better and better and better. And we as human beings will be able to solve our own problems. So there's this, this awesome optimism. 
But then also out there is this pessimism as well. That either the world will end through Skynet, that's like Terminator 2 if you're a fan, or a zombie apocalypse will come and wipe everyone out, or the polar ice caps will melt. And so our secular world has this sort of very optimistic, pessimistic view of history. But Paul says in verse 14, he says, we believe. Christians believe that Jesus died and rose again. You see, we have a certain view of history. We believe that history, forgive me for the pun, is his story. That the world was created good. Man sinned against God, but then God sent Jesus at just the right time to die and rise again. But that's not the end of history. The end of history closes, his story closes with him returning. Um, you know, uh, I don't know if um, you've ever purchased a house before, but if you've ever purchased a house, when you buy a house, you and the seller agree on a price. And then it goes to settlement, and finally there comes a time where you've settled and you own the house. However, still there's often a bit of a time before you get the keys and before you take possession of the house. Well, in the same way, Jesus' death and resurrection 2,000 years ago purchased this fallen world, this world that is broken by sin and ruled by death. However, Jesus is yet to come back and take possession of this world, but one day he will. He will come back and take possession of this world. Look down in verse 15. Paul says, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we are who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. You know, students of Scripture have killed a lot of trees and spilled a lot of ink over the centuries on the questions of end times. But before we get into the basic order of events, let's not miss Paul's important point in verse 15. He assures his readers that what he's about to share with them doesn't come from his own imagination. He didn't just make it up. It's not his own clever interpretation of Scripture. But rather it comes, look in verse 15, as a word from the Lord. Now this phrase has created much debate among commentators. Some believe that Paul is referring to the Lord's teaching, perhaps the Olivet Discourse, as recorded in Matthew 24, Mark 13, or Luke 17. In which case, when you read those passages of Scripture, the return of Christ happens at the end of the tribulation. But I think it's more likely that this phrase should be interpreted as a message from the Lord, referring to new revelation given to the Apostle Paul or possibly Silas. Commentator F.F. Bruce notes that in the Old Testament, this phrase was often used to refer to prophetic revelation. And I think that Paul here is giving new revelation that that wasn't previously known about the rapture and the return of Christ. You see, in the Gospels, Jesus was primarily speaking to Israel, but in the letters, Paul is primarily speaking to the church. Now, at our church, we believe in what is called a pre-tribulational rapture of the church. Now, if you're new here today, you're like, pre-tribulational, what? (laughs) Uh, What is that? What does that mean? What does that big word mean? Well, basically, what we believe in our church is we believe That before the tribulation happens, which is spelt out in the book of Revelation, this time of unprecedented wrath, that God's pouring out his wrath on the earth, Jesus will come and take believers to be with himself. He will rapture believers 
to himself. Resurrect and rapture believers to himself. And while the tribulation is going on on earth, the church will be enjoying the marriage supper of the Lamb in heaven. And we believe in the pre-tribulational rapture for three reasons. Let me give them to you. Now, if you believe something different, I want you to know that we love you. You're still a Christian. You can still come to our church. But let me give you the reasons why we believe in the pre-tribulational rapture. First, as Paul says in the next chapter, God will not subject us to his wrath. When I used to struggle as a little kid over the rapture and whether I'd been left behind, I'd come into my dad at night and I'd go, Dad, Dad, have I been left behind? Oh, good, you're there, Dad, so I haven't been left behind. You know, Dad's gone and we've got a problem, right? Um, and my dad would just say to me, Timon, Timon, remember this promise of Scripture. God will not subject us to his wrath. And as you read the book of Revelation, it is an unprecedented time where God is pouring out his wrath on the earth. And it's interesting when you look at the book of Revelation, you have the church mentioned in the first three chapters, letters to the churches. Then you have the throne room scene in, verse, in chapters 4 and 5, and the church is, the church is worshipping the Lamb in heaven. And then you have from 7 to chapter 19, you have this tribulation happening on the earth and the church is nowhere to be seen in those chapters. You have tribulational saints and you have the 144,000 Jewish witnesses, but you don't have the church being mentioned. Second, we believe in a pre-tribulational rapture of the church because it makes best sense of how Jesus said to us that he was coming soon. You see, Jesus said that we should be ready and waiting for his return. And he told parables about this. And the end of the Bible finishes in Revelation 22 with Jesus saying, Behold, I am coming quickly. And the church says back what? Come, Lord Jesus, come. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Now this can only happen, the, the return of Christ can only be imminent if there is a pre-tribulational rapture, if there's nothing to be fulfilled before the rapture occurs. And finally, I think it does make sense of all the details of prophecy in the whole Bible. Now, to unpack all those details for you this morning, I don't think that you would have attention long enough for me to actually go to Daniel 7, Daniel chapter 9, Daniel chapter 11, Daniel chapter 12, all the prophetic books of the Old Testament and unpack it for you. But let's just look at the verses before us this morning. Let's just look at this passage before us. Look in verse 16. And even if you disagree with me this morning, let your heart be moved by this fantastic event. Because even if you disagree with me, if you're an amillennialist this morning, you still believe that the next event is the return of Christ. And so let your heart be moved, be moved by these beautiful verses. Let us be moved to worship as we read these verses. Look at what it says in verse 16. Paul says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven. This is emphatic. It's not a representative. It's not an angel. It's Jesus. The one who walked on water. The one who fed the 5,000. The one who was scourged, mocked, beaten, crucified. The one who rose again. This Jesus is going to come back bodily and physically. Now then it says, and a loud command, he comes with a loud command and the voice of an archangel. So he descends in the midst of pomp and ceremony. 
You know, in the ancient world, whenever a king would come before them, some would, someone would come and they would say, long live the king, long live the king. There would be this ceremony and when Jesus comes back, there is going to be glory and this great loud command. Now, we don't know exactly what the loud command is that Jesus is going to give. Maybe it's going to be, that's enough or time's up or I'm back. We don't really know. Paul doesn't say... But it's going to be amazing to see Jesus come down. And then Paul says, and the dead in Christ will rise first. This is a statement of priority. Apparently some of the Thessalonians had believed that maybe the, the dead would miss out on the, on the return of Christ. But Paul says, no, the dead in Christ are going to rise first. Notice those two little words as well. The dead in Christ. This is a resurrection of believers. The unsaved dead are going to remain in their graves until the great white throne judgment. And so this is the believers who are raised. Then look down in verse 17. This is amazing. After that, we who are alive and are left will be caught up together with them. This word caught up has the idea of, being, of, of coming down and being swooped up with Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that it will happen in the twinkling of an eye. Andy was playing drums today and he sort of tripped over something on the stage. And I said, amazing, amazing if it would like right at that moment, the Lord was to rapture him before he fell over on the stage. It'd be amazing. Twinkling of an eye. This is amazing. But you know what I'm looking forward to most? As Paul says, the dead in Christ are going to rise first, and we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds, and we will forever be with the Lord. So encourage each other with these words. Do you know what I'm looking forward to, church? I'm looking forward to seeing my grandmother again. She was a believer. And she's going to come in a resurrected body. When I knew her, she had been beaten up by years of life and by the circumstances of her life, but she will come back in a glorious, resurrected body. I'm looking forward to seeing little Lucia, my brother's daughter, who was born, stillborn, who never had a chance at all. She's going to come back in glory. It's going to be beautiful to see her. And so will you see your loved ones again? This is the question. Well, let me share with you the answer is this, church. It depends. It depends. Firstly, it does depend on them. You see, we will only be reunited with our loved ones if they have believed by faith in the Lord Jesus. You know, someone once said that funerals make universalists of the best ministers. When you go to a funeral, there's a great temptation on the pastor to say that the person has gone to a better place. But we must not let sentimentalism get in the way of biblical truth. Jesus himself said, not everyone is going to enter the kingdom of God. It's true. Now, what do you do with the fact that maybe you know one of your loved ones did not believe in Jesus? How can you live with that thought that they are lost forever? Well, remember, God is gracious. And maybe even at the moment of death, if they called out for mercy to God, 
Even a cry for mercy, I think, can be heard by a gracious God because we are saved not by works, but by His mercy. But also, Revelation 21 verse 4 says this, and you can look it up later. It says, in the new heavens and the new earth, God will wipe every tear from our eyes. When we see the beauty and glory of God and we realize how good, how just, how righteous He is, we will not struggle with His righteous judgments. But we will bask in His beauty. But people, this truth should not depress you. It should motivate you. I've been thinking about it this week. It should motivate me. Every parent here should be praying for their children that they might come to know Christ every day. Every grandparent should be praying for their grandchildren to come to know Christ. And we should be looking for opportunities to share the gospel with the people around us if we really believe in what I'm teaching this morning. You know, J.D. Greer in his book, The Gospel Above, says that he is convinced the reason that many Christians don't share the gospel is they're not really convinced about the doctrine of hell. He says that he struggles with this too. He said that he never realized how deep-seated his own lack of true belief was until he met Rhonda. Rhonda was in her mid-twenties, and she'd grown up in New England, far from the Bible Belt, and he had the opportunity to share the gospel with her. And so he writes, I started with the basics, who God is, why Jesus came, and how we could receive him as Lord and Savior. And she asked a lot of questions, but I wasn't prepared for the question she asked last. She asked me, do you actually believe this? And I said, yes, of course I do. And she says, well, because you don't act like you believe it. If I believed what you were saying, that everyone in my life who does not know Jesus is separated from God's love and headed for hell, then I'm not sure how I'd make it through the day. I'd be on my knees praying for them. I'd be trying to convince them to come to Christ. She said to him, you don't seem bothered by this at all. You lay out the details pretty well, but it just seems like a philosophical question, not a matter of life and death. Do you realize, church, this is a matter of eternal life and eternal death. See, will you see your loved ones again? Well, it does depend on them. Whether they have received the free gift of salvation through receiving Christ into their life. And so we as a church, our great burden should not be about ourselves and our comfort and what we get out of church. But our great burden should be the community around us. Should be weeping over the lost. Praying for the lost. Using our life to reach out to the lost. But secondly, secondly, it doesn't just depend on them, it also depends on you. Where do you stand with Jesus this morning? Is He your Savior and Lord? Have you trusted in Him? Death is the great divider. You still have hope to trust in Him. But when death comes, you will have no more hope. The door will be shut. When the flood came, Noah was a preacher of righteousness. He heralded God's message to the generation. And right up to the day when the rains came, there was an opportunity to come to Christ. But as soon as the rain came, it says that God shut the door of the ark. And there was no more opportunity. 
I don't want you to sit week and week out and week in in my church and not realize that today might be the day of salvation. Now might be the time for you to come to Christ. Right now, this day, this hour, while there still is an opportunity. Jesus is coming soon. He's coming soon. He could come back tomorrow. And then the end time events will start. And I want you to be there with us in the clouds meeting Him. I want you to be there with us. Because He is so glorious and so good. He laid down His life for you so that you might have eternal life. Will you turn to Him today? Trust in Him and put your faith in Him. Well, that brings me to the end of my message. So I ask the question one final time. Will you see your loved ones again? The answer from Scripture is clear. We'll see them again if we know Jesus and if they know Jesus. So how do you know Jesus? It takes a step of faith. Whereas you receive the free gift of salvation by faith, you invite Jesus to come into your life. You say, Lord Jesus, I invite you in. I receive you as my Lord and Savior. And in a meeting like this, many people in this room did that many years ago. Daphne was telling me before the service that was it your grandma's funeral? Your mum's funeral. They gave a gospel call, and eight people became Christians at that funeral. Today might be the day where you become a Christian, where you invite the Lord Jesus into your life, where you trust in what he has done, you admit you're a sinner, you believe in what he's done for you, and you confess him as Lord. This might be the day. If you want to do that right now, I want to pray a prayer, and I want you to lead you in the prayer. The prayer is not magic. It's not the, the prayer, the words are not magic. It's about the state of your heart. You recognize, God, I am a sinner. I need Jesus as my Savior. And I ask God to come into my life. I ask Him to come into my heart. I ask Him into my life and receive what He's done for me. So let me pray this prayer and you pray it along if you want to receive Christ this morning. Dear God, I need you. Maybe more than I've ever known. I admit that I have sinned. I've thought things, I've said things, and done things that do not please you. I realize my sins cause me to be under a death sentence. I also come to you, and I know that you sent Jesus, your only son, to pay the price for my sins by dying in my place on the cross. Jesus, I thank you for giving your life for me. I celebrate that you rose from the dead in victory over sin. I need your forgiveness. Enter my life and become my Lord from this moment on. Thank you for all that you have done and all that you will do in my life. Amen. Amen. Have you prayed that prayer this morning? If you've prayed that prayer, good news is, is that Jesus has come into your life. He's made you a new creation. Your future is different. You have eternal life that starts now and will head for all eternity with Christ. What a beautiful thing. Well, let's stand as a church. We're going to sing about the return of Christ.
together as a church. Let's lift our voices and celebrate the return of Jesus this morning.